You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. What up, Cavs Nation? I'm your host, Ethan Sands, and this is another episode of the Wine and Gold Talk podcast. Last week, I sat down with Jimmy Watkins to discuss the legacy of LeBron James. Go check that out as you'll hear more of my takes on the subject in that episode. But nevertheless, I couldn't leave your favorite beat reporter out of the mix. Here to join me today is Chris Fedor. What up, Chris? Glad to have you back. Ethan, thanks, man. What's going on? Nothing much. Just reeling from last night's Raptors game. Maybe we'll get into that a little bit. But today, Chris, we're going to get interactive. We're going to see what our subscribers on Subtech had to say about the LeBron debate from last week and where they went in on the GOAT debate, where LeBron stands in the league right now, and if he should get statues in Cleveland, Miami, and Los Angeles. But make note of what these folks are saying because I'm going to come back to you afterwards to get your take. All right, let's start with Michael from Northern Kentucky. Michael says the statue of LeBron should have already been put up in Cleveland and it should be of his signature turnaround jumper. He also says that he should get a statue in Miami and Los Angeles because LeBron James is just obviously the greatest player of all time. His top five list of all time goes LeBron, Jordan, Magic Johnson, Kobe, and Bill Russell. Next up is Jeff in Brexville, who says there should be no statue while he's playing, and certainly not in Cleveland because it makes the Cavs look desperate. And the statue should only be considered after he retires if more than 50% of his time was spent in Cleveland. Jeff does think that LeBron is a top 20 player, closer to top 20 than top 10 as of now, but he actually mentions that he believes that Donovan Mitchell is better than LeBron James right now. Jeff's list all time has Jordan over LeBron because of killer instinct, he mentions, and he rounds out his top five with Kareem, Elgin Baylor, and Kobe. All right, Chris, I have to stop on that one. Donovan Mitchell is better than LeBron James. What do you think about that right now? It's such an interesting way to look at it, right? Like, are you looking at how the guy performs for his team at this stage do you ignore past history when having this kind of conversation because like if we're honest donovan mitchell is in the early season mvp conversation right he's probably in the top 10 of players maybe top 15 of players right now like lebron at this stage of his career is not the same player that he was five years ago. He's not the same player that he was 
10 years ago. So I think there is some truth to the fact that Donovan right now, where he is in his career and where LeBron is in his career, is better currently. It's just that LeBron has accomplished so much that you never want to start pushing him down the hierarchy because you know what he's capable of when it comes to winning time, when it comes to a playoff series. That makes sense. But the other thing that I wanted to note based on Jeff's list is he has Elgin Baylor in his top five all time. You have any thoughts on that? No, look, I mean, I think it's so hard, Ethan, when you're talking about comparing eras and stuff like that. So there are people that are going to make a top five list of of players in the NBA that wouldn't be on mine because I just don't have that same knowledge of their game. I just don't have that same understanding of the way that they impacted things on a nightly basis. It's not somebody that I've ever looked at and said, okay, that guy has to be in the top five players. He's not in my top five specifically. So I, I think that's probably a little bit high for somebody like Elgin Baylor. And I would love to hear from that texture moving forward in the future why, when there is like a controversial one, if it is a controversial one in the top five, like why that guy over somebody else like Kobe or something like that. All right, Jeff in Brexville, go ahead and hit us back on subtext and maybe we can have a further discussion on why you have Elgin Bailey in your top five. Yeah, like what are we missing with him compared to Wilt Chamberlain? Like what are we missing with him compared to Shaq? My last one for today is from Eric in Myrtle Beach. We talk about having texters in all different states and sometimes even different countries. I love it. I love it every time it warms my heart. But Eric says that there's only three players in the GOAT conversation and no need for a top five all time. It's LeBron, then Jordan, then Kobe. He also says the statue in Cleveland is a definite and it should be the block. Eric's last statement was that LeBron should get a statue in Miami, but he needs another ring in L.A. before he gets a statue status there. I think that Eric's right. There's really three players in the GOAT conversation. If we're going off of what Jordan did and who was trying to elevate to what Jordan level was. But I said I was going to come back to you, Chris, so I hope you're ready. Let's go one by one. Who's the greatest player of all time in your eyes? Michael Jordan. Over LeBron James because? I've seen more of LeBron's career. I've chronicled more of LeBron's career. But it's just hard for me to look and say a guy who never lost ever in the NBA Finals, doesn't deserve to be number one, especially when he also accomplished all the things that he accomplished during his career in the regular season with scoring, what he meant for the NBA during the time that he played. It was just, to me, rarefied air to have somebody be that great, have that level of greatness, sustained excellence, and be so dominant every time he got to the NBA Finals. LeBron's losses in the NBA Finals are something that you can't overlook. And we're talking about the greatest of all time. So it may seem like the smallest separator between two guys. And LeBron deserves a ton of credit for getting to more finals. LeBron deserves a ton of credit for lifting different franchises to heights that maybe people didn't think possible. His impact is undeniable. But again, I think when you're talking about these kinds of conversations, you're looking for the smallest possible separator. And LeBron's NBA Finals record 
has more blemishes than Michael Jordan's. And I don't think that's something that I can ignore. Before we get into the next question, what would you have to say to a fan that said that because Michael Jordan was swept twice in the first round, that that has more to say about LeBron James's longevity and being able to get to the finals so many times rather than losing in the first round. Yeah, I mean, I think LeBron deserves a ton of credit for taking as many teams to the NBA Finals the way that he did and his longevity and the sustained excellence in the fact that he's been in the conversation for the best player in the NBA for two straight decades is something that is very, very rare. And there's no doubt about it. But I think Michael Jordan losing in the playoffs at the time that he did before getting to the NBA Finals is something that you take into account when having this conversation, for sure. Just like you take into account LeBron's Finals record, for sure. And you piece it all together. And I don't think there's one thing that you can say, ah, it's this. And this is the reason why it's Jordan over LeBron or LeBron over Jordan. Like some aha thing attached to their resume. I think when having a conversation between the two, you look at everything about them. And if people want to hold it against Jordan, that he didn't reach the finals as much as LeBron, I totally understand that. I'm just putting more weight, I guess, personally, on a guy who got his team to the NBA finals as much as Jordan did and never lost on that stage the way that LeBron did. And last question from me before we get back into the scheduled questions. LeBron is still playing, obviously. Is there a way that LeBron can surpass Jordan in your mind? It's a fair question. I don't know that I've ever looked at it that way. I mean, look, if he gets to six championships, that kind of changes the equation, right? Like, it doesn't change the blemishes on his resume, the finals losses that he has there, but it evens those up a little bit more, right? Like all of a sudden the win-loss record in those NBA finals is a little bit different. The winning percentage overall is a little bit different. So like if the Lakers go on to win the championship this year or next year and LeBron is still a key part of that team or if LeBron leaves Los Angeles, goes somewhere else to finish out his career and that team wins another championship, then yeah, I mean, I think you start evaluating it a little bit differently because the resume looks different at that point in time. Okay, now back to your regularly scheduled programming. Should LeBron get a statue in Cleveland, Miami, and Los Angeles? And what do you think they should be of if they should be there at all? Yeah, he definitely needs to get a statue, Ethan. It just can't go up while he's still playing. That's the thing. Right now for the Cavs, he is still an opponent for them. And you don't welcome an opponent for a regular season game in November or March or something along those lines or play against him when you go on the road and already have that statue. Statues to me are reserved for when a career is done, when there's finality to it. And then you start thinking about that. The Cavs know that LeBron's number is going to be in the rafters. The Cavs know how important LeBron was to this franchise. I mean, if you look up at all the banners at Rocket Mortgage Fieldhouse, he's got his fingerprints on all of them, including the lone championship for this franchise. So everybody inside this organization understands just how important he was. He got dudes jobs. He got guys paid. 
he put this city on the map in a different kind of way. He got this franchise its lone title. So a statue is going to happen. It's going to be a recognition of everything that he meant to the Cleveland Cavaliers for those 11 years, or maybe it's a little bit longer than that if he decides to come back to the Cavs and finish his career here. But it just can't go off while he's still playing the game of basketball. And in terms of what it should look like and what pose, I've actually thought about this a number of different times. And I know Dirk has that one-legged fadeaway. That's the statue. That's his signature. I don't know that LeBron really has like a signature pose or a signature stance aside from the chalk toss. Oh, I think him with his head tilted up and his arms out to me, like that's the signature look of LeBron. That's how I would remember him the most. You know, MJ obviously has his logo with his legs kicking out and soaring through the air. I just don't know that LeBron has like an on-court moment like that beyond the chalk toss. That's what he's synonymous with. So I would do that when it comes to the statue. I'm interested to hear what other people think about that. And I'm interested to hear what you think about that too, Ethan. I like the idea of the block and I like the idea of him doing like his little turnaround fadeaway that him and Kobe kind of patented. But I didn't even think about the chalk toss. And that is something that I feel like could be universal. Like we, you didn't really get into if it was a possibility for him to get Miami and Los Angeles statues, but he's done that there too. So if they wanted to be like a universal statue rather than having a different statue in each place, that would work for there. I think that's a great idea. Obviously, I think if you had to break it into three different places, like Cleveland, Miami, Los Angeles, I think you have to go with moments. Like Miami's going to have a statue for Dwayne Wade. Might as well get two birds with one stone and do the Dwayne Wade and LeBron James pass and dunk. That's a perfect statue for that. And then Los Angeles, I feel like that's where you would put that little turnaround jumper that he has because that's how he broke Kareem's record. What do you think, Chris? Do you think he gets a statue in Miami and Los Angeles? Or do you think, because we were talking about this with Jimmy last week, do you think LeBron gets his jersey retired in every arena like we expect Michael Jordan to get? I think it's entirely possible that it happens in every arena because you have that much respect for the things that he's accomplished throughout the course of his career. But I think the ones that come to mind first and foremost are obviously Cleveland, Miami, and Los Angeles. And if you're having any kind of conversation about a guy who is either the best player of all time or the second best player of all time, I don't know how you're a franchise that has been part of that guy's journey and you say, no, he's not going to get a statue, right? We're not going to honor him that kind of way. Maybe there's a team out there that just doesn't believe in statues and it's not something that they've ever done. Okay, if that's the case, that's the case, right? But if you're a franchise and you've been a part of his journey, I think you have to honor him accordingly, no matter how much time he spent there. Obviously, with the Cavs, it's been the longest tenure of any. It's been 11 total years with Cleveland. It's where his career got started. But the Lakers were a big part of his journey, too. 
right? The Miami Heat were a big part of his journey too. And I think you have to honor that. I think you have to respect that. And I get the sense that both of those organizations will do right by LeBron and find a way to honor him the best way that they think possible. I think a statue would be fitting for all of those organizations. We talked last week with Jimmy about the universal jersey retirement. I said that LeBron has worn 23 more than he has worn six, and that having both Michael Jordan and LeBron James's jersey retired universally would, one, be easier for the league because you just have one jersey retired rather than having two. But Jimmy said that he thought that LeBron's number six jersey would be retired just because it would be a different number. Where do you fall on the spectrum? I mean, six is never going to be worn again in the NBA regardless because of Bill Russell. So, I mean, I think number 23 is more synonymous with LeBron than number six is. I think when you think number six jersey, you think Bill Russell, and it's always going to be Bill Russell. And from now on, it's only ever going to be Bill Russell. When it comes to 23, maybe down the road, if if LeBron passes away, if Michael Jordan passes away, then all of a sudden the NBA comes up with a thing to honor that guy that kind of way and says, hey, nobody else moving forward can wear number 23 again. It's something I could see happening. I just don't think it's going to happen as soon as LeBron retires because it certainly didn't happen as soon as Jordan retired. And I just can't see the NBA not doing that for one guy and then doing that for another guy a number of years later. So I think 23 is going to continue to be worn across the NBA until a situation arises where one of those guys may no longer be with us. I think that's fair. My last question for this topic, where does LeBron stand in the league today at nearly 39 years old to you, like top 10, top 20, top 30, where would you put him? Again, it's so hard because like part of this conversation and part of this equation is you can't ignore what a guy has accomplished throughout his career. And you can't ignore what you believe a guy is capable of doing because of what they've done through their career. Like, I know LeBron is about to be 39 years old. I know that he's in year 21. But I also know that when you get that guy in a playoff series, in the seven-game environment, where the stakes are the highest, that that is the stage where he's been at his best. That's where he can be his most dominant. And it's hard for me to see all of that dominance over the past in his career and say that that's not still in there somewhere because he's not having the same dominant regular season that we've grown accustomed to or because he's almost 39 years old because he's in year 21. But, but, but you just don't know, right? Like the things that he's doing now at this stage of his career, he shouldn't be able to do. Like, it almost defies logic to see him be as dominant and impactful as he can be on some nights. But, like, is he as good as Shea Gilgis-Alexander? At this stage, just for this year, probably not. Is he as good this year, at this stage, as Giannis, Jokic, Steph, KD, Embiid, Jason Tatum, Luka Doncic? No, he's not. So as much as it pains me to do it, 
because he's had a place in the top five, top ten for nearly two decades now. I can't put LeBron at this stage of his career in the top ten. He's probably going to burn me by doing that, right? He's probably going to turn around and prove me wrong because that's what he does. But for now, this season, he's not a top ten player in the NBA. He's not playing like a top ten player in the NBA. Yeah, I got him in top 20. But we're going to take a quick break. But don't go too far because when we come back, we're going to talk to our Subtext subscribers again in this rendition of Hey Chris. To become a Cavs insider and interact with Chris and I, subscribe to Subtext, sign up for a 14-day free trial, or visit cleveland.com backslash Cavs and click on the blue bar at the top of the page. If you don't like it, that's fine. All you have to do is text the word STOP. It's easy, but we can tell you that the people who sign up stick around because this is the best way to get insider coverage on the Cavs from myself and Chris. This isn't just our podcast, it's your podcast, and the only way to have your voice heard is through subtext. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. All right, we're back, and now we're going to do the fans' favorite segment, Hey Chris. This allows our subtext subscribers to freely ask questions about the Cavs, and I'll ask them to Chris for y'all. Let's get started. David from Boston, Massachusetts says, 20% of the way into the season, and the only consistent component to the team is a well-populated injury list. Aside from getting everyone back, what should the team do to start consistently winning games? Chris? I feel like we have the same conversation about the Cavs all the time, and I say the same thing, Ethan. And I kind of sound like J.B. Bickerstaff, but it's true. At some point, you just have to recognize who this team is, the strengths and weaknesses of this team. And if they're going to continue to commit to the pairing of Jared Allen and Evan Mobley, this is going to be a defense-first team. And that's how they're going to have to consistently win games. They aren't the high-paced, explosive Indiana Pacers. They're not built that way, right? They can't play that kind of way. Same thing when it comes to the Atlanta Hawks and the Phoenix Suns. The Cavs are built differently. The Cavs are built to win consistently on the defensive end of the floor. Still, at this point, their defense is still better than their offense. So if they're going to find consistency, if they're going to rack up wins— if they're going to stop playing 500 basketball, they need to get back to being the defense that they were for the last two years, where they were at the top of the NBA, or at least for this group, 
being close to the top. This team being 14th in defense, middle of the pack defensively, that's not going to be good enough because their offense isn't good enough to support right now anyway isn't good enough to support that kind of slippage on the defensive end of the floor. I think everything leads to the defensive end for the Cavs, and we've talked about that all season. J.B. Bickerstaff has said that with Evan Mobley and Jared Allen starting to get comfortable playing aside one another, it's starting to grow, and we saw it yesterday against the Raptors and how they were able to get out into transition, and that sparked Max Struess' 20-point third quarter. So defense leads to offense, and offense leans to wins. and especially when you have a lockdown interior like the Cavs can have. But moving on to the next question from Rick from San Diego, who asks, what are Luke Walton's specific responsibilities with the team? Is he working with Evan Mobley? What is he doing? It's interesting because everybody always wants to know this, Ethan. They're like, okay, which coach on the staff is responsible for offense? And which coach on the staff is responsible for defense? I just don't think the Cavs have it broken down that kind of way. And I don't think the Cavs want it broken down that kind of way. But yeah, Luke Walton is somebody who has been in the NBA, who has played at the highest level, who has won at the highest level. And he, like everybody else on this staff, has a couple of different players that he oversees the development of. Antonio Lang, before he left for the Atlanta Hawks, was overseeing the development of Jared Allen, J.J. Outlaw, is the guy who oversees the development of the guards in this group. And Luke Walton, in part, oversees the development of Evan Mobley. Evan Mobley is one of the most important players that this franchise has. You can make an argument that he is the most important player to their future anyway, and them reaching the goals that they ultimately have. And they have given Luke Walton, Coach Greg Buckner, J.B. Bickerstaff, all those guys, a little piece of monitoring the development of Evan Mobley. And that's something that Luke Walton has done since he came to the Cavs to become one of JB's right-hand men. All right. Last one for today. Dave from Pennsylvania said that Chris has said in the past that the Cavs knows their title window will truly open when Mobley is their best player. Is there anything fans might miss that shows he's moving in that direction? Well, we've talked about this a few different times, Ethan. Development isn't linear. Every player in the NBA is going to develop at their own pace. You can't speed this up. But I just don't know how you watch Evan Mobley this year. And combined with his defense, which is still near the top of the NBA, which is still just as impactful as anybody else. So combining that with some of the evolution that he has shown on the offensive end, I don't know how you can sit there and say he's not a different player. He is a different player. He has grown. It hasn't been the leap that all the fans have wanted. It hasn't been this eureka moment where all of a sudden he's out there shooting three-pointers at a 30-35% clip, or he's all of a sudden super comfortable when it comes to shooting jumpers outside of five feet or anything along those lines. But just because he's not evolving and getting better in areas that fans have picked out for him that they determine as growth or improvement, doesn't mean that he hasn't grown and improved. And I think sometimes that's what we're missing. Look, he's not the same skill level in terms of on the offensive end as somebody like Chet Holmgren, another young player that he's drawn comparisons to. But Evan Mobley so far this year 
is in the 98th percentile on the defensive end of the floor in terms of dunks and threes estimated plus minus. He's in the 89th percentile overall in estimated plus minus. So it shows that his offense has been good enough to complement that all-world defense. And he's making an impact every single time he goes out there on the court. So I've always judged Evan and his ability on how much he impacts the game at both ends of the floor. And even with a jumper that's not there yet, even with a discomfort when it comes to shooting three-pointers and mid-range pull-ups and stuff like that, Evan is finding a way to impact both ends of the floor. He's making better passes. He's making better decisions. He's grabbing the ball off the backboard, orchestrating offense, pushing the pace, going coast-to-coast for finishes. He's not as reliant on his teammates getting shot opportunities for him. Like last year, 75% of his made shots were assisted by teammates. And it's just not that same reliance. So those are small, those are incremental improvements that show that he is becoming a different player on the offensive end of the floor while giving the Cavs the same impactful defense on a nightly basis that he has given them since coming into the NBA. I think we've seen Evan also grow in confidence this season. In some areas, sure. Before the road trip, he wasn't bringing the ball up as much or taking shots outside of five feet like we mentioned he struggled with. But last night against the Raptors, it was apparent he was bringing up the ball at almost any chance he had the opportunity to. He took a three-pointer, which I almost like gasped at. <laughs> and he made a shot one or two steps within the three-point line. And I had to withhold myself from throwing my hands up in celebration. Like, it was something that we've seen Evan kind of stray away from. But just knowing that he is starting to take those opportunities, especially against a defense that was struggling to guard him, and he understood that. Evan Mobley is surely growing and also coming into himself as an offensive-minded player. I mean, he's always going to be a defensive stopper. and You can see against LeBron and the Lakers that they wanted to go at Evan because he was lighter than LeBron. But when the Cavs put Jared Allen in, they didn't do that as much, but they were more willing to go into the paint. When Evan was in the game, they didn't want to go into the paint at all because of his reach and the amount of times he can get back out on defense into the perimeter. It was interesting to see. Here's the other thing, Ethan. Part of this is on Evan Mobley, and Evan needs to get a better jumper, and he needs to get more consistent with that, and he needs to shoot it with more confidence. It can't come as an afterthought, right? But the other part of this is just his role within this offense right now, because of the other personnel that surrounds him, doesn't match what down the road it will probably end up becoming. And it's like, if Evan is going to become the best player in this organization, his role within the offense is going to have to evolve alongside of that. And this is what I mean. So he is taking the same number of shots per game as he did as a rookie. It's about 12 per game. Now you can sit there and you can say, well, part of that's on Evan. He needs to be more aggressive. He needs to be more of a polished offensive player so that his teammates continue to give him the ball and all those different things. But like part of the beauty of this Cavs team right now is that all these guys have a specific role and they're willing to do that role 
and they're trying not to go outside of that role for the betterment of the team, right? Because it's always what's best for the team. That's how the Cavs have tried to construct this sort of thing. And still for the Cavs, based on the personnel, Evan Mobley shot attempts at this point, they come at the expense of Darius Garland, Donovan Mitchell, Max Struess, Jared Allen, Karis LeVert, guys like that. Production oftentimes comes from opportunity. And within this offense, Evan Mobley is not going to be the first or second option. Unless Darius or Donovan are out. That's the way that it goes. The highest that he will be on this team, the way that it's currently constructed, and the way that he is developing, is the third offensive option. And until that changes, Ethan, I don't know that he's going to have big-time nights consistently from the scoring standpoint or big-time shot attempts from the field goal attempt standpoint. And I just don't know that he's going to become this dominant force on the offensive end the way that some fans want him to when he's playing alongside two ball-dominant guards in Darius and Donovan that are going to take most of the possessions and most of the shots on this team. I brought up Chet Holmgren, right? You did. did. Think about Chet and think about him in Oklahoma City. Shea is the go-to guy on that offense. He is option number one. He is the focal point. Chet is already the number two option offensively for them. He's more important. He's more involved than Josh Giddey. He's more important, more involved than Lou Dort. Same thing with Jalen Williams. So how Chet is being used and what he's asked to do on his specific team is different than the responsibility on the offensive end that Evan Mobley has. And you can sit there and you can start going down the list of other guys, other young players in that same Evan Mobley ilk. And you'll notice that a lot of times what they're doing on the offensive end and the production that they're putting up, yes, part of it is they're more advanced from a skill set standpoint than Evan is. The other part of it is they have more responsibility. They have more freedom on the offensive end of the floor. They're more involved on the offensive end of the floor. So as I said, oftentimes production and stats, that is tied to opportunity. And Evan is just not going to have the same offensive opportunities as some of these other guys that we've talked about. It's not going to happen here. And with that, that wraps up today's episode of the Wine and Gold Talk podcast. Thank you all for tuning in. Remember to subscribe to Subtext to become a Cavs insider and interact with Chris and I. This will give you more insight than any of your everyday social media platforms. Sign up for a 14-day free trial or visit cleveland.com backslash Cavs and click on the blue bar at the top of the page. If you don't like it, that's fine. All you have to do is text the word stop. It's easy. But we can tell you that the people who sign up stick around because this is the best way to get insider coverage on the Cavs for myself and Chris. This isn't just our podcast. It's your podcast. And the only way to have your voice heard is through subtext. With that, we'll catch you next time. Y'all be safe. We out.